Good to hear me anyway, though, right? We were getting after it. Uh, the idea of, this is for the ones that get on our podcast. We want them to be able to hear all the good stuff. Um, the idea of purity, that we've got to be working towards this concept of, of moving our minds towards thinking about things that are holy and righteous and true and purity of mind and thought and fighting to keep purity, our marriage pure, outside of our marriage is pure, maybe before we're married or if we're not married, fighting for purity of mind and purity of heart. And we talked about greed, the idea that greed is a cancer, a cancer of our heart that tells us essentially this, God, you and your promises are not enough. I need, I want, and I deserve more. And it's not just in material things, right? We talked about the idea that coupled with sexual immorality, greed is really a part of that. I desire or deserve more pleasure, or I want it from this realm, or I deserve more attention, or whatever it is. All that begins to transpire in our hearts. The second part of this is what Paul follows up with in chapter 5, verse 4, where he begins to talk about how these things begin to come out of our mouths. And that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning, is how these things that build up in our heart If we're not warring against them, begin to poison the things that come out of our mouth and impact those around us. And Paul at the very end is going to give us this great exchange that we're called to exchange these things for something so much better. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in one verse again, which just means this is we're going to be here forever. But that's okay. Word of God is timeless. All right, so let's pray and then let's dive into this, this. both very difficult yet very true and important part of uh, what Paul is telling us in terms of the life of a believer. Lord, we do thank you for folks like um, Megan and Christian. Lord, I remember Megan was actually in my youth group in 2005, maybe, 2004. I remember when she first came to meet Jesus. Um, And now she's sitting in France with her husband and baby telling other people about Christ. And I look at what the legacy the gospel is, and I'm just in awe. I love the fact that they've heeded your call and that as a church, we get to support them uh, financially and prayerfully and with, with our hearts, that we get to be a part of what people are doing around the world. Um, folks like them, the McBrayers and other missionaries that we support, that we spotlight and look at each month for our ministry with the Afghans and the refugees that are here and for Brandon's heart for uh, those families and for helping us develop a contagious heart for those families, Lord, that wants to see them come to know the truth of who God is, but more than even that, just our call to be obedient to you. And that obedience actually translates to a lot of different places in our life. It translates to the fact that you call us to imitate you, to become imitators of God and word and action and deed, the way that we love and forgive, the way that we behave. And that that behavior has specific guidelines that are laid out beautifully in your word. It's not an arbitrary thing in which culture gets to tell us what's true or false, Lord. Your word does that. And that imitation is vitally important because it becomes a picture of who you are. That the church is actually the representation of the gospel to the entire watching world. And so our behavior and our words, the things that come out of our mouths and the things that stir in our hearts are vitally important. In fact, Paul knew this so well that he communicates this to the church to say these things just matter. And so this morning, as we begin to talk about the things that come out of our mouths, help us not get caught up in just the nitty-gritty, but in more the big picture of what you're trying to tell us, how we're called to exchange the garbage in our life for something so much better. Take a moment in your own heart as you sit here this morning and just ask the Lord to prepare you to hear his word, prepare you to encounter him, and that he would teach you this morning. Just whisper those things in your heart.
Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or behind you, in front of you. Uh, Pray that God would move in them. Uh, Be in the habit of praying for other people, as we say every Sunday. Everything that happens here this morning is not about you. Care about the spiritual movement and direction of people around you and pray for them. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe you've never seen him before. Maybe here for the first time. Any of those things. Just pray that God would move in the community this morning, people around you. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We ask that you would teach us through your word, that you would make us imitators of God, that you would free us from the things that Satan wants to lie to us about and show us this beautiful and great exchange that we can make. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first four verses um, of chapter 5 are really important because Paul's making this shift. He's, he's done this incredible thing where he's taught and pushed us towards unity and unity for the sake of not just being nice to each other and unity, but unity for the sake that the church becomes the instrument by which the fullness of God is sent out to the world. He tells us that in chapter 4. The world sees the full expression, the full measure of Christ by how the church is drawn together, by the unity that it possesses. Gentile Christians, uh, Jewish Christians, one new family that is living and breathing this gospel redeemed, and they are demonstrating to the watching world. Paul takes that up a notch by saying this, Therefore, you must become imitators of God, which on its face or at face value is sheerly impossible, right? None of us can imitate God. We can't even come close. However, through the Holy Spirit, right, things become incredibly possible, for nothing is impossible with God. So the imitation we begin to take on are the qualities and characteristics that God possesses, and we explored those at length a few weeks ago, right? How, how the people of God are called to behave. We're called to imitate God in our behavior, and the way that we forgive, and the way that we love. And so Paul takes that up a notch and also says, not only is it just purely a a demonstration of action, it's actually a purging of things in our life that are destroying us and replacing them with something so much better. And that's where we got into last week. So I want you to hear these verses put together because they go together. They're not meant to be separated. They're meant to be read in concert. We have separated them out for the sake of time. Last week we looked at one. Today we're going to look at the other. But I want you to hear them together. All right, so this is Ephesians Chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, coming on the heels of the call to be an imitator of God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So last week I mentioned something that I'm going to mention again in case you're here for the first time. I just want you to hear it because these qualifiers are really important. All right, I want you to just hear these things because there's two things you have to understand before we really get into the depth of what is happening here. And the first one is this. These lists of six things, and there's two lists of three followed by this great exchange. This list of six things is not a prerequisite to be saved. All right, so We know in no shape or form or fashion are these things things that we have to do to earn our salvation. Every single person that Paul's writing to in the context of this church, we can have no doubt or reliant upon that they are sitting there as believers. This is written to a group of Jewish and Gentile Christians. But that's important, right? Because it means that we don't have to be sexually perfect or purity in our minds to be perfect, right? Or that all these things, we can't have any greed in us or we can't have made a bad joke or, or cussed at our kid or whatever, and we're not saved, right? 
What it means is that these things that are happening in the life of a believer, and they've happened in the lives of a believer for thousands of years, right? And Paul's addressing them with the church because they become problematic, because they are a problem. They're not a, they're not a hindrance for our being saved, but they're part of the process of purging towards our sanctification. The idea of sanctification, if you remember, theologically is this idea of becoming more like Jesus. So in the life of a believer, we are daily walking in this life of sanctification, which will be hopefully becoming more and more like Christ. And part of that is a purging of the things that are not like God. The second thing we have to understand there is that Paul's addressing these things because they are problems. Right? Like I mentioned last week, you don't have a little talk with your son or with your daughter uh, over something they're not struggling with. You have a little talk with them because they're wrestling with something, or they're dealing with something, or there's a problem. And that's what's happening. In the church, these things were problematic. And so if you're dealing with one of these things, right, if you're, you're struggling within the context of, of, of your marriage or if pornography has reared its head in your life or if you have a terrible mouth at work or if you use words as a form of, of, of weapons, don't be discouraged. See this as an encouragement because God begins a new moment in this day. His mercies are new and Paul's using this as an encouragement to fight and to war because God's grace is new. So don't walk out of here beat up. And some kind of shame spiral. The truth is God is, is doing these things to help us purge our lives from them. Because they are real problems. They were problems 2,000 years ago. And they are real problems today. So first we look at this thing from la- or last week. And we'll, we'll just quickly say those are the things that take place in our hearts. Sexual morality, impurity, greed. Conditions and brokenness. Cancers of the heart. Paul builds on that by going, and now we're going to address things that come out of our mouths, which are, are fascinating. And most of us can gloss over these things, but, but they're really powerful. And I want you to see them because the kicker here is that if we're going to be imitators of God, the things that come out of our mouths should imitate the things that come out of the mouth of God. Right? That's the big picture here. And Paul lists three things that are deeply problematic for the life of a believer. The first one he says is this, right? So just as there must not be a hint of sexual morality, impurity, or greed, there must not be a hint of obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking. So there's our list of three. So he says the first thing is this. There must not be a hint of obscenity. Now, a lot of translations will translate that as um, filthy language. The reality, the, the Greek word there actually means obscene or things that are obscene or obscenity. It's actually a really good translation to use the word obscenity. And for most of us, our idea of obscenity, right, is this idea of, of cussing if you're from the south or cursing if you're from the north or wherever, right? It's basically any of those four-letter words and their closely associated cousins, right? We can go through a list. We can get creative with it. There's a whole lot of them. We've, most of us have used them or have used them at some point in time. And sometimes I will tell you that it seems really validated, right? But Paul's telling the church here, he says, there's something that we have to fight against that comes out of our hearts flows through our mouth, and that's the idea of obscenity. Now, obscenity is not just limited to cussing or cursing. It's not just limited to to four-letter volleys of words. It's, It's actually something different. If we really understand the idea of obscenity, it's this concept of what is obscene. And to be obscene is to be abhorrent or contrary to morality or virtue. So things that come out of our mouth that are contrary to the morality or virtue of God, So obscenity, if coupled with what we talked about last week, right, sexual immorality or impurity or greed, obscenity isn't just using bad language. It's using things in our language and in our speech and our words that are contrary to the morality and virtue of God. 
which includes a lot of things like dirtier sexual jokes. Because we talked last week about how God has created this incredible, beautiful gift of sex and given it to us in the confines and sanctity of marriage, which we defined scripturally. If God has given us this thing, and we make jokes and pervert it and destroy it, we're destroying things that are virtuous and right that God has made. When we use language to talk about other people that is obscene, right? Words that are cussing or words that do destroy things that God has created, we are breaking the virtue and morality of what God has made. It's important, right? It's important because if we're called to be imitators of God in our language, the things that come out of our mouths should mirror the things that come out of God's mouth. Now, these are not things that I have mastered. They're not things that you've mastered, but they're things in our lives that we are called to work on, right? We have to ask ourselves, the things that come out of our mouth, are they honoring and holy and pleasing to God? It's a simple equation. We know when they're not. You know when you should ask forgiveness from someone. You know when you should go back to your wife and say, I'm really sorry. And you know that no matter how mad you get at your children, there are certain things you shouldn't say to them or about them. I had a neighbor who uh, was close to us growing up, and they had kids, and he was a neat guy, but he was a hothead. And I can remember multiple occasions where I could hear him in his house screaming at his children, telling them, and he was, for all practical purposes, outside of his anger, he was a nice dude, kind to us, nice to my brother and I, my dad and him were good friends, but I can remember these occasions where I could hear him in his house screaming at his kids who were my age saying, life would be better without you. I made a mistake, right? The reality is, is that even in our moments of being angry, we have to watch our words, right? Because I don't believe he believed that for a second. I watched him around his kids. I was with them all the time. We vacationed together. He loved them. But in his moments of anger, the things that came out of his mouth were destroying what God had made. Think about what you can unravel with one sentence. And if you're a parent, you know what this means. Or even if you're married, you know what this means. You're in a long-term relationship. What you spend years building up, encouraging, supporting, telling them that you love them, showing them with your actions, you can unravel in one sentence. And that one sentence becomes the hinge point that is remembered time and time again. Think about it like this. If you've ever posted anything online, right? Most of you don't, I'm sure, but some of you may post these things and you get a hundred amazing comments that are like, you're incredible, you're great, you're unbelievable. And that one person says, this is terrible, I can't believe you call yourself a person, you should die. And you're like, you know what? You will remember the one. You will not be able to be unfixated on the one. And that one person is this crazy kid from high school that you don't even really remember or know, but it bothers you like crazy, he doesn't like your new haircut. You have no idea why. Everybody else said it looked great. He said, you look like a Muppet. (laughs) And I can't get that out of my head. Like, these are the things we fixate on. So how much deeper is that when you say it to your spouse or something that's got this deep tone to it? If you've ever cussed around your kids, right? I mean, you know, you can use a, a gentle one or you can use a big one. What is it they remember? They remember the day that daddy cussed, right? They remember, I still tell my mom about the time she yelled at us in the car and threatened to hit us with a lamp. I don't even know where she was going to get it. We were in the car. 
I think she was just naming things. So Paul says this. He says, listen, as there shouldn't be a hint of sexual morality. There can't be a hint of this. Now, most of us are thinking these things aren't as bad as adultery. True and false. They destroy just the same. So he goes on to say this, right? He goes, not even a hint of, of obscenity or foolish talk. Now, foolish talk is one of those, he's like, what in the world is that? Well, it's actually fascinating because it's exactly what it sounds like. The Greek word there is morologia, which basically is two words, moros and legos. When moros is this idea of uh, stupid or foolish. It's where we get the English word moron, okay? And legos is the, uh, is the word for speaking. So basically he's saying, amongst you, there must not be a hint of moronic, stupid, or foolish talking. Now, for me, that can mean a lot of different things, but mainly what it means, I think, is when coupled with these other things that we're seeing, it's saying, don't waste your words on things that are absolutely ridiculous, which is 98% of every marital fight, right? We argue for the sake of arguing. We want to be heard, and so we interject things and say things that are foolish just for the sake of saying them. Oftentimes, we feel like we just need to be heard. So we say things that we actually don't know anything about. We begin to talk about them as if we're experts. And then we make some kind of giant stand knowing full well that it doesn't even matter. We do it at work, right? We do it to try and hurt somebody else's reputation or their thing. We do it to try and bring our wife or our husband down a notch. We do this thing with our kids where we basically say, do it because I'm your dad. What does that mean? I mean, if they know my Hard. I'm no saint. You shouldn't do everything I say just because I say it. Like, the truth is, I should tell you why. And it should be part of that story until you understand why these behaviors and things are important and valuable and true and right. And I need to be man enough to know that when I'm saying something out of my anger or frustration. Foolish talk is this idea that there's infighting in the church over stupid things. I've lived in the church my whole life. I have worked in the church since 1997. I have watched people destroyed over carpet color, over whether or not we should remove this mirror, or whether or not this person's name should be in this room or not. I've watched people leave. I've watched them get hurt. And I've watched them be hurt over much bigger things than that. But I've watched the ridiculous nature of what we fight about. And I realize that when Paul talks about unity in Ephesians, there's a real reason for it. Because the enemy will destroy us from the inside out, and most often that comes over things that are absolutely ridiculous. They're moronic. Literally, moros. They're moronic. They're stupid. They're only there because my ego says they need to be there. Every, I'll take that back. 90% of the fights that Meredith and I have as husband and wife, and we, well, I guess we've been married, what, it'll be 20... Six years this summer? 26 years. And a long one. Um, well, most of them are all my fault. We we're fully aware of that. However, <laughs> however, all of our fights, for the most part, 80, 90% of them, are over things that are foolish in nature that my ego or pride have not been able to let go of. I'm sure she can claim a few of those things as well, but for the most part, I know well enough me and I know well enough our marriage to know that most of it is foolishness. It's my inability to swallow pride or my inability to let something go or my kind of selfish nature in things to keep the foolish alive. 
And we, fool, we just feel, or we just fuel the foolish, right? Because it's typically about me. And I think Paul understands this, and he realizes the church is fighting over things, or they're debating over things, or people are, are having these, these things that are happening over things that don't matter, and those things are building outside of the walls of the church. And if we are the demonstration, the full measure of Christ in the world, maybe we should do a lot more listening, right? I guarantee you that a majority of our marriages would be much better off if we would, both parties would just choose to listen more. Right? Instead of getting engaged in these foolish things. Right? So he goes on to say, no obscenity, not even a hint of foolish talk or coarse joking. Right? So this is interesting, right? Because what does that mean? Well, the Greek word for coarse is the idea of lewd um, or inappropriate or um, kind of sexual in its nature. Like it's this idea of dirty joking or joking about things that aren't appropriate or joking about things that actually destroy. God's not saying you can't be funny or don't have a sense of humor. He's basically saying don't have a sense of humor about things that matter to God. Things that God holds in high esteem, right? Like people. A lot of our jokes come at the expense of other people. I'm terrible at this. They come at the expense of making fun of somebody else. They come at the expense of making fun of things that God has created as holy, sex. They make offense at things that God has made to be true. Of course, joking is just the part of us that says, I'm going to do this for a laugh, even though I know it probably shouldn't happen in this setting or in any setting. So we can nitpick and get to the bottom of what these are, but if you see the bigger picture here, something is going on, right? Paul has coupled these things with things that I think every single one of us in here would say, those are big, sexual immorality, right? Adultery, impurity, greed. He didn't follow the giant list up with a with the bottom list, like, okay, and then everything in between, these little small things. He puts them in the exact same sentence as those because these things destroy. And they destroy the church, and they destroy the church's representation to the world, right? Because nothing, right, destroys more truthfully than words. We oftentimes can get over someone's action long before we can get over their words because their words haunt because their words sting, because their words are easily recitable. Actions we tend to be able to forget. Words poison us forever. They're high value in the life of the Christian. So if we're going to become imitators of God, the words we say matter, right? Paul talks about things in Ephesians like, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but that we should be building each other up, truth and love. So what's the big picture here? Well, the big picture falls in that next little sentence. There's two pieces to it. The first is this, right? There should not be a hint of all these things. Obscenity, foolish talk, of course, joking, which are out of place. Which I find a really interesting way that Paul words it, right? He's saying, it's, he is not just condemning it, saying good Christians don't do that, right? He says these things, because they happen in the world, they're out of place in the life of a believer. They're out of place because the things that we've been given as a life of a believer, the things that we've been called to, the representation that we have is to honor, right? And to, to represent and to imitate the holiness, the righteousness, the beauty, the exaltation of who God is. If you've ever held somebody in high esteem, 
when you've looked at them and you've said, man, this, this person's, they're, I, I, I respect them, I love them, I've seen their actions, I've done whatever it is, and you see something that they do that's morally reprehensible, shatters your heart, doesn't it? We've all seen it in our Christian leaders. You've watched from afar as you've read books and blogs and listened to all these podcasts, and then it comes out in the papers that so-and-so was actually this person, and it destroys. Words are similar in that fashion. If you've ever been around someone that you know is someone that you hold in high regard as a believer, and they have the terrible, filthy mouth, or they make fun, or they gossip, or they just, you look at them and you just kind of go, oh, because they're out of place. Because we know that the life of a believer is called to be that representation, that mirror, that imitation of who God is. And it's not that none of us do this. It's just that we should be actively warring against it. So look, the reason this is is because most of us, we do different things in different settings. right? The, the, the words and the way that we talk to our mom... It's not the same way that we talk to our friends, which is not the same way we talk to our work friends, which is not the same way we talk to people at church, which is not the same way we talk to our boys or we talk to our girls. We tend to vary our language and our speech depending on the setting. And for a believer, our mouths should be truly consistent. It should be a representation of who we are all the time, everywhere that we go, that you should be the same person at home, as you are at church. The way you speak to your wife in front of me should be the way that you speak to her. Well, I take that back. The way you speak to her wonderfully in front of me should be the way that you wonderfully speak to her when no one is around. Right? The way that you use language around your church friends or your people that you have in this sort of moral circle of respect should be the same way you talk to your friends at work or the people at work. The Christian should fight for consistency of heart and speech all the time. They're not wavering places in which we pick up this and we do this here and do that. You know why that is? It's because we're called to be wholly different than the world. At every point and at every time, we are called to live and to act in a way that is fully different. And that's what Paul's getting at. Paul is getting at this idea that as believers, we are called in every situation not to adapt to the world and be a great Christian in church and be a great worker at work and a great this at home, but instead be the same consistent representation, imitation of God at home, at work, at church, on the golf course, out with your girlfriends, like wherever. You are the same consistent, beautiful imitation of Christ, or that's what you're fighting for. That's what Paul's getting at. He's saying, don't do one thing here and do something else out here. And then Paul does what he does all the time, which I absolutely love. He does this great exchange. Because here's the thing. God is not in the, really, in, in the business of just telling us not to do things. He always tells us not to do things by exchanging them with some much bigger truth or something that is much better. Right? That we're not called to, to just not murder. We're called to actually give life. God does this all the time, and Paul does these things in his letter in which he calls us to this great exchange. Listen to Paul's great exchange. you got to hear both these verses together, right? But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, 
but rather thanksgiving. And this seems weird to me, at least initially. So instead of all six of these things, instead of engaging in sexual morality or impurity or greed or obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, instead of all of those things, but rather thanksgiving. And I started thinking about this. I'm like, well, what does that mean? Just, just be happy, be grateful, don't cuss, just be thankful? Like, how do you even make that exchange? And I began to think about it, and I realized a couple of things. The first thing I realized was that Thanksgiving is the great reversal of the perversion of Satan. So Satan loves to take the things of the world, right, and pervert them and call us to adapt our lives to them. And being thankful is actually the reversal of that perversion. So if you look at these verses, for example, you'll see it. So the idea that, that the world calls us to be sexual and moral. Do whatever you want, whatever pleases you, right? In the Ephesian church, it was go to the temple of Diana. Sacrifice however you want to sexually to whatever. In our culture, it's, hey, look, marriage is, you can get out of it if you're not happy, right? Or go find pleasure somewhere that pleases you. Or sex before or outside of marriage is fine. Or outside of the sanctity of what God has described as marriage is fine because that's something you desire. Like, just pursue it. The Word of God says, no. We honor what God has created and given us in terms of sexuality. The world says, hey, pornography's fine. It's at the fingertips of every single person. Like, it's normalized. The Word of God says, fight for purity. Purity of heart and mind. The world says, hey, chase what you want. Be greedy. In fact, if you don't look out for number one, no one will. If you want it, go and get it. The Word of God says, be content and joyful with God and his promises. They are enough for you. The world says, right, use a language that justifies actions and things and talk the way the world does. And the word of God essentially says, speak truth in love and honor people. Build them up. Fight for their wholeness. Thankfulness is this idea that we as saved people don't have to live in the perversion of the world. God has given us this beautiful out. This world doesn't encapsulate us, doesn't define us. We're not defined by its definitions of sexuality or its definitions of language or its definitions of action. We've been redeemed from that. So what am I thankful for? I'm thankful that I'm no longer of the world. I've been redeemed out of that. So the first part of understanding this idea of thankfulness is really understanding that God has given us this beautiful out. Because that place out there is dark. It's dark. And it's broken. And it doesn't take long for you to see it. And I'm not just talking about the global picture of world, of war and, and trafficking and all these horrific things. I'm just talking about the pure spirit of the world is dark. It just is. It's selfish. It's me-driven. It's destructive in every form and fashion. The opposite of that is the redeeming, the perversion of Satan is that God has actually called us to be life givers. And I'm thankful that that world is not my home. But also thankfulness is a state of being. It's not something we do, right? So being thankful is not like, okay, I'm just going to say thank you to everybody and all these things. It's, it's a state of the condition of my heart. Thankfulness is how I want to wake up. 
because I know who I should be without Christ. I, I know the trajectory that my life was headed in. And I'm not talking about this terrible, horrible thing. I'm just talking about the trajectory of pursuing myself and how empty it was. I know where I should be without him. And yet he redeemed and rescued me. And thankfulness is a state of being that understands that I did nothing on my own to earn or merit or deserve God's love. Yet he lavished me with his grace, redeemed me and saved me. And therefore this morning when I wake up, I draw breath and I can say, God, I am so deeply grateful that I am alive. And I'm so deeply grateful that I'm breathing and that you're allowing me to draw breath and that I can be at a place where I know that my worth and value is not defined by the world out there, which is dark and broken. My worth and value are defined by you and you alone. For you are king eternal. You have given me definitions that change everything. You are telling me that I have my value and worth is not in what the world says it is. I don't have to look like they look. I don't have to use their definitions of conformity to my physical appearance or to fit in with my language or to bend my norms or my morals to fit in with a cultural river that is swimming straight to hell. But I have been redeemed, not because I am better by any means, but because you are so, so good. And the entire trajectory of my life becomes wanting the world to know you. Not them to know my morality, not for me to be my moral soapbox, but for them to know you. And this is what Paul's saying. This is how the world begins to know. Because the church and believers live wholly different. If you are only living this way in here, but out there, your language, your mouth, your lustful heart are living in the world, well, what does that do? Nothing. It's empty. The consistency of action, behavior, and language should follow us at every breath and every moment. And I'm thankful for it because I don't have to live that way. And I'm thankful that God does not cast me out on my first mistake, second mistake, third mistake, 90th mistake. His mercies are new. Today, if you are in this place and you are wrestling and struggling, you're struggling in your marriage. You're struggling with your purity. You're struggling with morality. You're struggling with your language. You're struggling with the way that you speak to your wife or to your children. If you know those things are a part of your nature, be thankful. God showing you that they're there is his first step of loving you so well that he wants you to be wholly different. Shame does not come from the Lord. Shame comes from the enemy, right? God exposes darkness with light and then calls us to walk out. He doesn't expose darkness with light and then berate it. So today, if you feel defeated a little bit or beat up or like these are things that you may never get out of your life, it's untrue. God is a redeemer of all things. And thankfulness begins by saying, I can't do this on my own. I've been called out of that way of life that the world says is okay and into something greater and it's on no doing of my own. And so thankfulness is how I'm going to be. It's who I am. It's going to be my deep and true nature. And at its deepest core, thanksgiving begins by understanding exactly what Christ has done for us at this table. This table is that picture of God's perfect and beautiful love poured fully out for us. It's not a habitual act that we do as a church 
It's actually an expression of God's incredible and extravagant love in which we are overwhelmed with gratitude. But rather, thanksgiving. So in whatever you're facing today, whatever struggle, whatever hurt, whether it's actions or words, or whether it's just something else entirely, instead of engaging in that behavior, that thing that's dragging your soul through the dirt, maybe it's time for us to make this comment, but I choose thanksgiving. Even in the midst of difficulty, I choose thanksgiving. Because this is what I have to look forward to. This is the beautiful picture of God's extravagant love poured out for us. And this is the greatest gift, right, that he's given the church. Because this is what we do together to celebrate. It's the thing that unites us as believers all over the world, across space and time. It's what unites us with Christian and Megan. It's what connects us with other believers gathered around the world as this table, this broken body of Christ is for us. Thankfulness begins by understanding that you didn't deserve this, and yet God gave you his life anyway. On that very night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night that every single one of his closest friends would desert him, they would just flee. On the very night that he would be betrayed with a kiss, handed over to an angry mob with torches and swords to be put on a sham of a trial. And that very night, after he had had the supper with his disciples, he gathered with them at the table and he took a loaf of bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he said, this bread is my body and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you, that as long as you take of this cup and this bread, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. You did not earn or deserve this. This is what Christ has done for you. And the Bible tells us that we're called to take this seriously, to examine our hearts, to confess the areas that we've fallen short before we engage in this meal together. Because the truth is, even that list of six things that we've gone over in two weeks, every single one of us has violated that in some form or fashion. And there's thousands of more. We cannot do this on our own. But that's the beauty of Christ, right? That we examine our hearts. We ask forgiveness. God redeems and forgives and loves, showers us with his mercy and grace. That we are not the sum of our bad behavior. We are not the sum of our past actions. We are fully new in Christ because he gave his life. So this morning, before you engage in this meal, I encourage you to examine your heart. Ask for forgiveness where you need to ask for forgiveness. Thank God where you need to thank God. And then come with a pure and open heart, with lips and words that honor him and bring life and not death. Because over all those things, we choose thanksgiving invite our elders to come forward as we pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to gather in your presence to celebrate who you are. Lord, we thank you for the call this morning that we have in Christ to live wholly different than the world, to be engaged in things that matter to you, to honor you in the way that we live, both in actions and with our words, but more so to celebrate the reality that we can't do any of this on our own. It takes you. You are king. You are God. But Lord, above all of it, we choose thanksgiving.
So as we celebrate this meal together, Lord, and we celebrate all that you have done for us in Christ, we ask that you will be glorified and exalted and lifted up. Amen. As you come forward and take this meal, we encourage you to remain standing as Don and our worship team lead us in worship. Let's share in this meal together. together. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of what this meal represents. 
and what this meal means, that you loved us, that you gave your life for us, Lord, that you gave us reason to be overcome and overwhelmed with gratitude and with joy and with thanksgiving. For God, you are king and you are redeemer. And Lord, we're thankful and grateful that we couldn't do any of this on our own and that you call us out of this way of life into something amazing and beautiful to imitate you, not because we can't on our own power, but because through the Holy Spirit, you have given us a redeemed and changed heart. So rather than immorality and impurity and greed, rather than obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, we choose thanksgiving. Thanksgiving that pours out of our lives and thanksgiving that pours out of our mouths. So as we close our time in worship, echo those truths from our heart that we celebrate you, the one true and risen God from whom we have total and full freedom and thanksgiving. Let's close our time in worship this morning. In the morning you sing over me And I receive your mercy Your faithfulness is clear to see It's constant every day Why do I worry? Why do I worry?
encourage you to be encouraged today. Like, I want you to walk out of here realizing, hey, I, I struggle with some of these things. In fact, every single one of us do, but God has not given up on me. So even if today my only thing is I'm going to be thankful that today I get to start again. A new way of life, a new way of thinking, a new living. Why? Because I choose to be thankful. Even when life is cramming down on me, I choose to be thankful. So instead of immorality or impurity or greed or, or obscenity or filthy talk, or course, joking, I'm going to honor God and represent him and imitate him in every form and fashion, every single area of my life with gratitude and thankfulness. Go in peace.